Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Charlie Gibson, Director of Energy and Resources at Edison Group. Charlie graduated from the University of Oxford as a chemist, joining Casanova in the early 1990s. After brief stints working in pharmaceuticals and oils, he settled down as Casanova's mining analyst. He moved to Tihor Canaccord as a specialist mining salesman and also worked for two years as Clough Mining's mineral economist. In 2003, he moved to New York, where he developed and marketed a black box model for valuing large cap equities before returning to join Edison in 2007. Um, Director of Energy and Resources at Edison Group. Obviously, miners uh, get some bad press because of the growing uh, ESG school of investors. Is, Is that a fair criticism? I think it's completely unfair, if I'm absolutely honest. Um, I think mining has, it it, it is one of the industries I think has one of the worst reputations, um, sort of, and when I say that, I mean in society generally, but I also think the reputation it has and and the reality of the business are about the furthest apart of any industry I can think of. Now, it seems to me, and I, I think this is because We've really lost our mining industry in the, in the UK, and people don't know what mining is anymore and how it works. And the image they have in their mind, if they're old enough to remember it, is sort of the UK coal mining industry from the 1970s and possibly the South African gold mining industry from the 1980s. And those were recognizably similar to the sort of industries of 1900 when we talk about the turn of the century. They were highly labor intensive, they were pretty dangerous, and they were certainly very dirty. But people have that image in their head that it's a labor intensive business going into small spaces deep underground. And the reality of it is that that has not been true for probably a generation now, I should say. They're highly uh, capital intensive. Mines now tend to be on the surface. They employ very, very few people. And what they're all about is efficiency. Now, you know, do they have to move large amounts of rock to do that? Yes, they do. But they're not doing it for fun. They're doing it to provide the materials around which we build our modern world. So the steel in our steel scrapers. I mean, it's funny that a lot of the people who are very critical of the mining industry are also those who are carrying the latest um, mobile phone, phone, and they don't realize that all of the high-tech metals that go into that, you know, the niobiums, the tantalums, the, the, the capacitors are stuff full of, that. that's all coming from the mining industry. So it is to feed their desire, if you like, for a better life, that the mining industry exists. It's not the mining industry mining these metals and somehow forcing it on an unwilling public. Um, and I always say, you know, when people say, well, we could exist, surely, couldn't we, just recycling the metals we have? And I say, well, you need two preconditions to do that. One is the population of the world has to stop growing. And two is that the existing popular, the wor- population of the world has to be happy with their lot in life and not want to get any richer. Because by and large, as the world, as populations become wealthier, they have a higher intensity of use of all of these metals. So those are the two preconditions. And since actually nobody wants to live, as far as I can make out, when you when you actually uh, ask people, would you be prepared to live in a world under those conditions, almost universally, uh, they say no. So no, I, I think actually that the mining industry has been actually quite innovative in its use of 
so solar power, um, where there are a number of projects which are you know obviously in hot countries, but they're looking at using solar power. You know, it's for their efficiencies as much as anybody else's. Um, but you know, very positive on the ESG side. Those companies, which indeed before even this became an issue, looked at using hydropower um, to 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 provide power for their various mines. And I'm thinking in the DRC and I'm thinking of Rand Gold Resources in this particular instance. Now, in my experience, actually mining mining executives and certainly large cap mining companies, um, uh, they're, they're very, very sensitive to the need for ESG and, and the requirements thereof. I know we see on the news, you often see sort of um, you know, pictures from Central Africa and the people, masses of people, waist deep in muddy rivers, usually looking for for diamonds sort of in a in a handheld way but that is not the reality of the mining industry i mean that is that is a very very small tiny artisanal thing that happens on the side of the the, the mining industry and we shouldn't be judging the mining industry in general and certainly not large western mining companies by those standards because that 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 is absolutely not how they operate um or or that how they make returns for shareholders Okay, and, and mining shares, of course, do have their own peculiarities. Why, why do you think moves in the underlying price of commodities are, are amplified in the share price of mining stocks? Well, this is this is um, basically because of what they call operational gearing, and this is really why investors buy mining equities. And if I could give you a, a very very simple example, if you imagine you had a mining company and it made. Uh, and its revenues were 100, and you can think of that as $100 million or whatever number, but just 100, and its costs were 50, if the price of whatever it was producing went up 10%, its revenue line would go to 110, its costs would stay at 50. So instead of having profits of 50, it would have profits of 60. So the, the, the commodity price has gone up 10%, but the miner's profitability has gone from 50 to 60, which is a 20% improvement. And so that is what is called operational gearing, and that's what you expect to get with your miners and what you expect and you certainly hope will then flow through to your share price. If your profits are 20% higher, you hope your share price is going to be 20% higher as well. And it's that geared effect, uh, effectively, on the uh, on the fact that you have a, a cost, I won't say a fixed cost, but you have a cost of production. And what you're looking for is a gearing between your cost of production and your revenue. And of course, another thing that we see with uh, mining stocks is uh, volatility, as indeed we have during the first half of this year. FTSE 350 mining index is virtually flat so far this year, but the sector is up around 16% or so of the last year. Um, what do you think have been the, the major influences on, on commodities this year and what will likely influence the rest of 2021? I mean, I think there, there, there are two things here, um, and it's stimulus from governments. And the extent to which that continues, because that is going to drive consumption. And then it's COVID and the coronavirus, uh, because that is going to affect production. And as long as actually we have governments still being fairly accommodative, and by and large, we are seeing them as being accommodative, but they're certainly not in any sort of tightening bias. At worst, I mean, you'd look probably at the United States, which is furthest along the route to begin beginning to think about how it might start. And what it's really doing is it's it's stopping thinking about being accommodative. It is in no way in any sense of the word that we have lived in history beforehand on a, any sort of tightening bias. So, But it's the extent to which governments are prepared to stay accommodative, to, to stay, to, to remain with policies 
uh, that stimulate uh, and, and create consumption in their economies, because that's what's going to drive uh, consumption and what's going to drive prices, ultimately, of commodities. And then you have the disruptive effect of coronavirus. Now, this can go two ways, and you saw it early in 2020. If you get coronavirus resurgent, or I suppose we could say now not going away in consuming countries, and of course, the biggest of these is China, then that is not, not a good thing. And that's why early in the crisis in 2020, you saw almost without exception, gold was probably the notable exception, but almost without exception, you saw uh, all other metals and commodities fall off a fairly steep cliff in February, March 2020 time. And then what happened is China went into lockdown, and then it began to come out of lockdown. And just as China was coming out of lockdown, and we're getting that consumption back, what we saw is coronavirus appearing in the producing countries. Now, uh, it's easiest to think of, of copper here and to think of South America, where about 40% of the world's copper comes from. And you're thinking Chile, you're thinking uh, Peru, uh, and you're thinking those sort of countries. That's where the majority of the world's, not the majority, the largest single portion of the world's copper comes from. And when they suddenly had those disruptions to production, then what you had is exactly the opposite effect. China resurgent at the same time that production was going down. And then you saw this incredible bounce in commodities. So, And, and between about March last year and the end of last year, almost without exception, I can think of one exception, all commodities then bounced very, very strongly. So we're still looking at that balance of where the stimulus is. And the stimulus is almost universal, actually, at the moment. And I don't, don't see anything coming to interrupt that. And then you've got where is, is production going to uh, be disruptive as a result of the crisis? Now, that's much harder to, to, to sort of be able to tell. But at the moment, we can see that disruption certainly uh, still exists in South America. Is it possible it, it could emerge in Africa? There are certainly some hints that there are rising rates in Africa, and there is not quite such a developed vaccine program. So Africa has been, to all intents and purposes, almost untouched by the coronavirus epidemic pandemic so far uh, into the crisis. If that were to change, that could have a big effect on um, production. The other country that's being disrupted at the moment is Australia, first world, obviously, but but it's had a slightly slower uh, vaccine rollout than than certainly the UK and the US. And they are seeing slight signs of a resurgence there, not a big one, and certainly not of the size we've had in the UK. However, they, they have locked down quite severely, or they do periodically lock down in, in Australia. And one of the, 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 the facets of that, which maybe we're not aware of, is it they can make it difficult to cross state borders in Australia um, in a way that we tended not to have done in the UK. But that can be quite disruptive if you're if your mine is in the in the middle of the Ulu somewhere, and you happen to be used to getting your labour force flying in or coming in from over a state boundary, that can be quite disruptive. So that is a country again where large producer of a lot of metals they're having a bit of a, a disruption at the moment. But that's really what investors need to look, look at. It's that, it's that balance between where the stimulus is going and where the disruption is in terms of production at the moment. That that is the absolute key, I think, for the rest of the year.
Now, I guess further out, some are talking about a new structural bull market for commodities, uh, and clearly there are positive catalysts. You've mentioned a couple already for, for metals and other resources. But uh, what do you think? I think, you know, we, we've been here before, and I'm always slightly um, cynical, if you like, when people start talking about a structural bull market. I think we are probably in a structural bull market. In fact, I'm almost certain that, that we are, as, and, and particularly as long as real interest rates, particularly in the US, remain negative and as negative as they are. I think we are. But what I think it's always worth clarifying. What do you mean? Do you mean, you know, is that a 10-year bull market? Is that a 20-year bull? You know, what do you mean when you say that? And also, in my experience, and you remember people were talking in the sort of 2005, 2006, 2007, they were talking about the same sort of thing, and they were talking about super cycles. The warning I, I would just give to investors is that where you, even if you do have a structural bull market, short-term effects can still be very large. So you can still see a lot of volatility in commodity prices, even if there is a structural bull market. And I think we've been in a structural bull market for, for 20 years, actually, in commodities since about January 2002. But you can still see some very big ups and downs um, that will that can also last for, for several years. So it doesn't necessarily feel like a structural bull market. And I think when 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 people use that expression, structural bull market, what people hear is, ah, oh, the market's going to go up for 10 years. Well, I can promise you it's not going to do that. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. It's not necessarily going to do it in those order, in that order. But if you happen to catch a down and it happens to last for two or three years, you can still be in a structural bull market. But my gosh, it it's not necessarily going to feel like it. So I think I, w- I would answer your 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 question with a yes. I think we are in a structural bull market. In particular, I think it's going to be driven by that widespread electrification of the world economy that we're certainly trying to move to for environmental reasons. But that doesn't mean to say that you won't see short, short-term bear market uh, trends superimposed over that, that over the short term are actually probably going to dominate. So you just have to be aware of that. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a one-way direction of travel. It, it's, a, it's a broadly one-way direction of travel, but there can be some quite big deviations and turnoffs during, during that journey. And uh, within that, do you think there are any particular areas where investors should be gaining exposure, such as what well, could be anything, copper, steel, gold, lithium? I, I think I think there are several areas that I would look at. Uh, you know, if, if it's electrification and, and that's the sort of the, the big story, then you're looking at lithium, you're looking at copper, uh, you're looking at cobalt, which is one that quite often falls off people's radar screens, but is very worthwhile looking at. You also want to look at nickel, which tends to be dominated by the stainless steel industry, but nonetheless, that is a big beneficiary of the whole electrification um, story. So that's an area. If you want turnarounds, uh, lithium falls into two categories. You've got, you've got the electrification category. It's also a big turnaround because lithium is disproportionately affected by this story. So it had a pretty miserable 2020 and is just beginning to turn around. So you've got, if you like, the structural direction of travel, but you've also got the cyclical direction of travel, and that's beginning to come up as well. So that's certainly uh, one to look at. Vanadium is another one. It's, you know, it's it's still, it's electrification, but in a slightly different way. It's sort of large scale power storage, very, very, very volatile um, in the last few years. But that's one that's worth looking at. If you're feeling brave, probably 
the biggest turnaround, I would say, would be in coal, where prices and values have been absolutely pummeled, particularly steam coal, which is the stuff you use to drive power stations. No one's really talking about, however, not producing coal, metallurgical coal, to make steel with. Nevertheless, it's, an, it's, it's a sector that has been pummeled, and you can pick up assets very, very cheaply in that, in that sector. So those are a couple of areas to look at. I, in my opinion, you should always have gold. That, that's your insurance policy for anything going wrong. It's also going to be a beneficiary of negative interest rates. And also, as long as monetary policy is, is basically towards the accommodative and stimulative end of the spectrum, and they definitely are uh, at the moment, that is a way of protecting yourself against what otherwise is effectively the, the debasement of paper currencies. So you always want some gold, uh, in my opinion. If you want to play the cycle and you think, all right, we had a miserable 2020 and uh, economies um, you know, disappeared off a cliff, but now they're coming back, what are the sort of the early metals to benefit from that? And I would point you towards silver and copper. And if you're looking for a special situation, I might direct you towards uranium. And uranium has had a very, very torrid time, actually, ever since the Japanese tsunami and, and the world really turned against uranium. And that resulted in a huge backlog. Uranium has a very long supply chain. And at every point in the supply chain, there, there were backlogs of material that, that, that were backed up. And we've been slowly working through those. Now, the truth is nobody knows how long, how big those stockpiles are, how long they'll last. But at some point, they're going to have, uh, they're going to run out. And if the world begins to, to turn towards uranium as part of the solution to the environmental problem, and it might do, um, because for large scale electricity power generation, clean electricity power generation, in, and when I say clean, I obviously mean no emissions rather than no radio, radioactive waste. But if the world does turn somewhat towards uranium, then you could see those those uh, backlogs of uranium material in the pipeline. You could see that used up quite quickly. And then you could see the uranium price, which has in the past, again, been very, very volatile. And if you would look back to 2005, thereabouts, you would see that there were periods when uranium of all the metals in the in, in the world was the best performer. So it has that potential, and I would put uranium into the, the special situations ca category. So those are, the, those are a number of themes that investors can certainly play at the moment. And um, finally, Charlie, and you've already covered this to, to a large extent, but what sort of impact do you think um, has the boom in renewable energy and, and the journey towards renewable energy had on the commodity sector? It's had um, the biggest effect is in lithium. It's the biggest percentage because really the world produces very very little lithium indeed and so if a little bit does or does not go into electric cars it has a disproportionately large effect on the price um there's definitely an effect there uh, but you've got copper as well there are many many times more pounds of wiring in an electrical in car than they are in an internal combustion engine car there are all of those um, wind uh, turbines that require large amounts of copper. So, so nickel as well uh, for batteries, cobalt as well for batteries. You know, if we have fleets of cars which are now being run by packs of batteries, then that is, you know, that is a, an entire new 
sphere of demand where we have not had demand before. Now, historically, both nickel and copper in particular, they do have other uses and those predominate at the moment, but it doesn't mean to say that, that there won't be a very, very substantial percentage increase in demand. Certainly, if, the gov- if governments are going to hit these targets that they're talking about for 2030 in this country, no internal combustion engine cars for sale after 2030, carbon neutral by 2050, for governments to hit those targets, they have to do something very, very um spectacular striking very decisive i think is the word i'm looking for they need to they 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 need a very very decisive initiative um and once we see the, the the color of their money if you like and they actually step up to the plate and say right this is how we're going to get to that future and th- these are the policies we're going to put in place to get us there then i think you you have the potential to see material increases in demand from a new part of the economy that we've never seen before, superimposed on what we have at the moment. So yes, and and what that needs to do, if we're going to get that supply, is the price needs to move to stimulate that production. So it's got to rise to a level where <coughs> companies that do not have mines producing these things at the moment think, at that price, it is worthwhile us developing this mine. Uh, and so that's what you need to see the price move to. And And um, and I think that's that's going to happen. Exactly the timing of it. Obviously, I can't be sure, but I don't think I don't think anyone else is either. Um, but that's what you're looking at. So yes, I think there is a there. If I can put it this way, there is a strong tailwind um, behind a lot of those commodities at the moment. And as whilst the direction of travel will not always uh, be forward, you will get cycles superimposed on that as well. Um, you know, it's it's a lot better sailing into a sailing with a tailwind than trying to sail into a headwind. Because I remember late 1990s and, and commodities were a pretty miserable place to be. Um, and now I think we're in the, in the reverse of that. So whereas they were facing headwinds then, they're, they're definitely facing tailwinds now. Great. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much indeed for that fascinating insight, Charlie. That's Charlie Gibson, Director of Energy and Resources at uh, Edison Group. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more, by the way, of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.